Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. I just wanted to read for some of the things that we talked about last week before we get into trauma-informed care. Just some aspects of how we support patients managing complex pain with multiple unexplained symptoms. So these are patients that have been investigated extensively. They've also seen many, many specialists. And these are patients that are really suffering from many, many avenues because what they experience is real. What they have is very real, even though they don't feel legitimized through the healthcare system because none of the testing has really given them an answer. So why it's so important to bring that conversation of central sensitization in there is that it helps to provide a cognitive anchor for that patient and helps them to understand more effectively what is contributing to all of their symptoms. So after being dismissed over and over again, as it's all in their head, that they're malingering or that they have some kind of a psychiatric condition, what central sensitization as an anchor does, it allows them to help them understand the complexity that they have and how their unique situation uh, does have a cause. So like I said, I don't want to understate the importance of how patients need to be investigated, but these are patients that we're finding that have had numerous investigations, numerous uh, specialty consults who need a cognitive anchor around the cause of their condition. And this is where you can bring in central sensitization. So pain self-management programs can be very effective Uh, for the patient if they're open to that or they're ready to consider central sensitization as a cause. I do, in some patients, provide them with Dr. Fleming's article. Just not, not so much that I expect them to, you know, take in all the information there, but that there is actually some literature on this to help them understand and legitimize what they're experiencing. So pain self-management programs are also another area where we can bring this in. Like I mentioned in the previous podcast, we have these checklists that we go get patients to go through that look at all the different uh, and the breadth of signs and symptoms that you can see with central sensitization. So it helps patients in the pain self-management understand pain physiology. And we did talk about pain self-management in a previous podcast, but it also can help them understand how our alarm chemistry works and how our alarm chemistry is tied into that pain experience, how when patients are experiencing pain, they're often in a very chaotic state of being because the brain wants you to focus, right? It's it's really in a survival mindset. So normally though, if this is acute pain, we wanna focus on that pain, we need to pay attention to that for survival, but we know that that pain will go away with time. In patients with persistent pain, that pain never goes away. So they are in this chaotic state of being or survival brain 24-7. So it's very hard to focus in on what is important and what is not. But in order to get through their day, they have to push some of it away. But these flare-ups will come back in to get their attention. So it's also a great place in pain self-management programs to help patients understand the importance of function management versus pain management. And in fact, I wish in our training as healthcare providers, 
there was more focus on the importance of function rather than pain. Now, I know that seems like a cruel way of looking at it, but if we think about what the pain system was designed for, it was designed to tell us when something was wrong and why we needed to pay attention. So it actually has purpose. Our goal is is to focus in on that, whatever the alarm is that's occurring in someone's body, whatever it is that they need to pay attention to, whether it's an injury, illness, surgery, or an unknown trigger, to allow us to pay attention to that and to use that pain to protect the tissue until it heals. Now, 20% of people around that number um, have significant pain without an unknown trigger, so they're not really sure what happened. But I still try to frame it in a way that's healthy. So this is acute pain, that it's healthy. This is how our body tells us to pay attention. It is also going to protect that tissue until it heals. So our goal is to get you moving in a way that keeps your brain sort of moving ahead, but also supports the tissue until it heals. If that pain is shutting you down, we need to help you figure it out. So whether it is some kind of an interventional strategy, an alternative strategy, pharmacotherapy, trying to keep the patient and community safe. So remembering that the two big things that our brain needs, our brain needs stillness, right? It needs calm. It's looking for calm. It also needs movement, right? Remember we talked about the fact that if you're not moving, if you're in that chaotic state, you're more vulnerable from an evolutionary perspective. So actually what it does, it increases the alarm. So if we over-medicate patients, make them too sedated, what's going to happen is their pain is going to get worse. And we do see this a lot in the palliative care population, that once patients become immobile, their pain actually gets worse. So rather than dialing back medication, we actually have to dial it forward in the palliative care patients. So you do see that routinely in the palliative care population. So getting patients to the point, though, where they're open to all of this information really comes around the readiness, right? So knowledge is possibility. It only is power if we use it, and primarily if we're ready to use it. So this is the uh, motivational interviewing piece. So if they're not ready, doesn't mean that we can't have these conversations, maybe to help change. Because remember, pre-contemplative, contemplative, pre-contemplative is I won't, not interested in them. Contemplative is I might. So if we can get them from I'm not interested to, so finding some place where you can work with the patient, that they might be ready to consider something. So maybe they're not ready to consider central sensitization, but they're ready to try something around movement because they're so desperate to try and get themselves active. So getting them focused more on pacing, they may be more open to that as well. So the general approach that we talked about to all pain is those talking points are essentially, especially making the distinction between acute pain and chronic pain, right? So remember chronic pain was recently uh, recognized by the World Health Organization in their ICD-11 classification to be a distinct illness. So Chronic pain and acute pain are completely different. It's like type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes. They're completely different in terms of their mechanisms, even though they share some commonality. Acute pain and chronic pain are very different from their mechanisms, even though they can share some commonality. So in the acute pain patient, I want them to understand the function of pain, that it's there to protect that tissue. It's there to tell us when something's wrong, but it's also there to protect tissue. So reframing pain that creates that safe space for the patient, that they're not going to cause damage by moving. 
Uh, it's how they move that matters most. So those patients that are developing some pain protective behaviors, meaning if they've got a sprained ankle, they're walking funny on that ankle, that's just really going to aggravate that injury even more. Their pain is going to escalate because the pain system wants them to, to use it properly. If they can't use it properly, they need crutches, right? So this is where the interventional stuff comes in. Or you may have a compression fracture in an elderly patient where it's very painful to move, but we need them moving. So an interventional uh, uh, strategy might be to use a back brace while they're up moving. It's also reframing that pain to let them know this is how the body tells you that the tissue needs protection. What we want to do is help you move better. So that would mean using a walker, even though most elderly patients hate walkers. But what the walker does is it allows them to be upright somewhat, and it allows them to have some safety so that they're not going to be at risk of falling. So our physiotherapist describes walkers and canes as pieces of exercise equipment. So that alternative therapy, so the breathing comes in, or if the pet therapy, music therapy, whatever works for that patient. And then the pharmacotherapy around safe prescribing becomes really important as well. So safety is a really important thing. Safe space, safe prescribing, safe movement, and safe talking points, right? Safe make Safety being promoted through the conversations that we do. And of course, if you're using any pharmacotherapy that is high risk, so I think of high risk primarily as the opiate analgesic and the cannabinoids, although there is no evidence to support the use of cannabinoids for acute pain, we want to risk stratify that patient and we want to help that patient manage risk, just like we do with all other high risk pharmacology. And I always bring in Coumadin or the DOAX. Uh, these are things that are used to help manage clotting problems that we see, like thrombus formation that we see with acute coronary syndrome, as well as for strokes. Just bringing more about some of the challenges around the readiness for someone to, you know, to think about their pain condition in a different way. So to see central sensitization as a factor that's contributing that. So looking at some of the cognitive aspects of where the patient is. So this is coming back to that trauma-informed care, you know, survival brain versus thinking brain. Remember, patients who are in persistent pain or patients who are even experiencing acute pain can be in survival mode. So that means that heightened state of anxiety that all they're hearing is the odd word. So if we're talking to somebody about cancer, all they hear is about cancer. They're not thinking about all of it. They're just thinking about that, can that cancer. So we need to come at the patient not with information overload, but really giving them small bits of information uh, in terms of their readiness. And this is where, you know, we can learn a lot from the experts that do work in trauma-informed care. So PTSD, that kind of thing. So a lot of those principles can be applied here. And hopefully in, in, in a future podcast, I want to interview someone who is actually an expert in this area because I want to see if we can bring in the similarities between chronic pain and trauma-informed care because I do think some of these principles around communication can be very helpful. So there are some cognitive aspects of recovery as well for the patient with chronic pain. And there's some, there are some cognitive retraining techniques that can be brought into the scenario for the patient. And uh, this is where we sometimes want to bring in some expertise uh, around this. So if we look at some of the non-pharmacological treatments that we can use for central sensitization, there's many out there. And there are people that are very uh, good experts in this. So it's really about how are we promoting movement? So if we think about all these different therapies, how are they promoting movement in a safe way and in a safe space? 
and how are we creating an environment of safety and joy by things like music therapy or pet therapy, right? So you're trying to change the alarm chemistry. So safe space, safe movement, safe prescribing, and safe communication, all really important in someone who's in survival mode. So I think of cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm not a cognitive behavioral therapist, but I definitely will find someone that can have this conversation with us. Those biofeedback mechanisms, right? Those, those interesting, you can now get them quite portable. And I've had one before, and it's kind of interesting watching your breathing and trying to slow that breathing down. So there are some mind-body techniques that can help that as well. Meditative movement therapies. So when I think of Tai Chi, when I think of Qigong, when I think of sitting in a chair, sort of just moving my arms very slowly, what happens is that the brain not only feels the movement, but it feels the movement in a safe way right? So it's a very, very deliberative movement. So for some individuals with significant pain, who really um, trying to do that mobility, that activity is very difficult. Sometimes starting in a chair with something like Qigong can actually be hugely empowering. So it's, it's starting in that safe place. So that breathing we talked about there can be complementary therapies like myofascial pain release, but that can be really painful, especially for someone with fibromyalgia. But you can try something like acupuncture, the creative work we talked about, the art, the music, the dance therapy, pet therapy. There can be different types of, you know, graded aerobic uh, exercise. So some people may feel safe in water. And typically patients, what I have found, and the literature supports this, is that p- patients who are living with uh, fibromyalgia often feel much safer in water. All right, so there is a whole other piece too around sleep hygiene that we'll do in a separate podcast, but sleep is one of these things that is elusive for patients who live with persistent pain. But if you think about it, your brain really doesn't want you to go to sleep when you live with persistent pain, right? Because it feels that something really is dangerous and bad happening. And the job of the brain is to protect you. So if you're trying to sleep, that means a vulnerability, Uh, That means you're not alert. So oftentimes it's very hard for the brain to shut off. Now, sometimes that brain hyper alertness or that difficulty with sleep actually began in childhood. And I, I really find a very good question that you can pose to a patient when you're trying to figure out sleep. So when patients tell me that they're not sleeping. So the first question I always ask is, were you ever a good sleeper as a kid? And the reason that's important is that some of the trauma or some of the uh, challenges of childhood and these adverse childhood experiences started at a very young age. So if I look at uh, situations, because what kids need is they need to feel like they belong, they need to feel loved, they need to feel safe. And if you have a mother and father who are fighting or who have are struggling with an alcohol use disorder or, God forbid, that there was uh, sexual abuse in that family, then typically nighttime tends to be when a lot of this starts to ramp up. So what kids will do is they'll stay awake to stay alive. And why it's important to identify that is at first it helps to give the patient a light bulb moment. They start to recognize, oh my God, because they may have had a very disruptive or an adverse childhood experience, never really slept as a kid. And remember, our brain needs stillness, right? It needs calm, it needs movement, is that what you start to see are these habits and behaviors to find stillness and calm that are often very destructive. And that would include 
I'm going to have a drink. So you might see a 12-year-old that actually has a drink of alcohol and immediately they get to that place of calm and there's this relief that happens. The problem is it's very short-lived and you can see almost that pattern where they start to replace or start to use this repetitive movement around drinking and because the risk of uh, alcohol use disorder. So remember 85% of all addiction will happen under the age of 18 is they are more at risk of developing a alcohol use disorder or another substance, right? So sleep becomes very important. If you do recognize trauma in an individual's life, and they could be 72 years old. I mean, it's really interesting when you ask that question about sleep. We tend to go to sleep right away with the, as a healthcare provider, not really digging into some of the pattern but if you've had significant trauma and the person has had uh, terrible dreams, uh, you know, nightmares, then a drug like prazosin, which helps to dial down the alarm chemistry, because remember the brain gets triggered as soon as it gets dark, can be something that can be useful. So prazosin is an alpha agonist. It uh, starts at one milligram. You can go up to two milligrams. And if you look it up, you'll see in the uh, up-to-date, for example, they'll have a section on trauma and the use of prazosin, because I often get many phone calls from pharmacists asking me why I'm using this drug. The other challenge that we have with pharmacotherapy in the chronic pain patient is that the, this, the use of the medication is super limited, right? I mean, we're talking about a 30% reduction. And there's a great tool that you can use out of the peer review group. So patients experiencing evidence research. This is a group out of Alberta, thinking about Dr. Mike Allen and Tina Karinsky probably saying that wrong, but they have a great tool there. It's a pain calculator. So you can find that and we'll, we'll put that on our site, but pain slash calculator.com. And what you can do is you can take the pharmacotherapy that we use for, so remember chronic pain and central sensitization are really generated from the central nervous system. So typically the pharmacotherapy that we're using works in the central nervous system. So this is where you bring amitriptyline, pregabalin, gabapentin, venfaxeline, deloxetine. And so in the article by Mike Allen, the Simplified Guideline for Prescribing Medical Cannabinoids in Primary Care, he has a great graft in there. And what you can do though with this pain calculator is you can take that patient and you can put in some data and help the patient understand, well, what's the value of this medication for me, right? So if we look at amitriptyline out of 100 people that are using it, only 25 actually improve with treatment and 50 or, or another 75 get no benefit at all. If you look at opioids, especially high dose opioid analgesics and high dose from this perspective would be something greater than 90 milligram morphine equivalent, which really is not that high when you look in the context of what patients have been using. And that has only been because of tolerance is at 18 improve with treatment and the remaining don't improve at all. So this helps patients. And this really just looked at a time frame of four to 12 weeks, right? So everybody is going to be different. But I think it's important to include the patient in the decision-making around the pharmacotherapy around chronic pain. And I always tell patients that you don't need to be on pharmacotherapy to manage your chronic pain, but you need to find other tools. So pharmacotherapy can be something that can be part of a strategy around a flare-up strategy. But if that pharmacotherapy is making the patient more sedated, not improving functions, keeping patients more disconnected, it will actually make their pain worse. And of course, there are the complications around opiate analgesics. Let's just go into uh, trauma-informed care a little bit further. Uh, I just want to mention as well, 
that safety piece that we talk about over and over again to acute pain. So this is about trying to reduce the risk of chronic pain and opiate use disorders as well. So we need to promote that safe space or safe environment, you know, calming that worst case scenario thinking, right? Remember when patients are experiencing acute pain, sometimes the brain will take them down that rabbit hole and they are in that worst case scenario thinking. We sometimes call this catastrophizing. So we want to find a way to calm that for the patient. So they're going to, we're going to calm it, not by discounting it, but by acknowledging it and helping them work through it. So we want to address those pain-specific fears and pain-protective behaviors they may have, examining them carefully, looking for any pathology or progression of a pre-existing disease. We want to also help the patient manage treatment expectations. And if you're using opioids, dispense those small quantities of short-acting, non-euphoric opiates over a short period of time. So that's the safe ED approach to acute pain that we talked about in a previous uh, podcast. So let's get into a little bit about trauma-informed care. I seem to have got distracted that time. This was at a conference that I talked about uh, in, I think, two podcasts back. Sort of amazed at the similarities between the neurobiology of survival brain and thinking brain. Patients who are living with persistent pain and central sensitization are often in survival mode. And this is tough, right? So this is not easy stuff, but we do hard stuff. That's, that's, uh, that's what we do. But I just find it so rewarding when you start to understand some of these concepts and you can apply it to the patient in the real world. So remember, knowledge is possibility. It only has power if we use it. One is how we know how to use it and also are we ready to use it. When I hear trauma-informed care, I think about that safety, right? For many of our patients who are in that survival mode, Sometimes their lived experience is going to be very different than our lived experience, or it could be very similar, but the habits and behaviors that they've used to get through their life may be very different than ours. So we know that every lived experience is a different story, a different journey, right? So every person we meet, rather than kind of saying central sensitization, it's one thing, this is how I'm going to deal with it. We also need to understand that everybody's had a different story in their life and a different journey. We've also used different habits and behaviors that we've uh, developed through our life that get us through the moment. Some of those are very short-term ones, right? So they get us through the moment, but some of them can be the ones that get us through the the long-term. So when I think of a short-term habit and behavior, I think of smoking. I think of having a drink at night, right? So that's something that definitely works. It's effective. It gets us through the moment, but it doesn't help us in the big term. When I think of things that help us in the long term, I think of these strategies that cause, they really are a lot of work. And one of them would be uh, meditative breathing. And I think if we could teach kids in particular the importance of sitting and being calm for a minute. I love one moment meditation because it just teaches us to breathe quietly for a minute, right? So, I mean, all of our brains are very active, but if we can start to teach kids from a very young age in school just to sit for a minute or even start them at 30 seconds, it's where they are. And what that does is we're talking about building resiliency and we're trying to help to minimize vulnerabilities. So meditative breathing can be one of those skill sets that can build resiliency. So every person we have has a resiliency or a vulnerability deficit or excess, right? So are they coming with more resiliency factors or are they coming with more vulnerability factors? So what we're hoping to do is build more resiliency, right? And our resiliency is really about a pivot and shift. So it does take some time. 
so that's the reality, right? So everybody has a different lived experience. Everybody has different habits and behaviors that they've used to get to that point in their life. And I see everybody as survivors. It doesn't matter if those habits and behaviors are things that they're ashamed of, right? They're just doing what they can do to get through life. They're doing what they can do to find that place of calm. Um, but sometimes these habits and behaviors have intense shame. So I think it's important to help patients recognize that we do what we do when we know better, we do better, right? We do what we do to get through that moment. So trauma-informed care for me is really about promoting safety at different levels. Safe conversations, safe space, safe movement, safe prescribing. So it's, it's really, uh, for me, it, rather than looking at the incredible complexity, it's really about looking at how I promote that safety how I empower that patient, but how I also recognize their readiness to do any of this, right? So I want to build resiliency, giving them habits and behaviors that don't just help them through the moment, although those sometimes can be very important. It's really helping them through the big term. So even those strategies that I use to help them in the moment, we want them to be resiliency-based factors that don't just, you know, numb them or disconnect them. And I'm thinking about, like I said, keep coming back to the smoking, keep coming back to those strategies that really do. And it could be food as well, right? So, I mean, I think food has something that is easily accessible, kind of really distracts the brain, creates this safety and this joy, right? I mean, I love food. And I'm not saying that I use it in a healthy way when I was younger, but hey, you do what you do to get through the moment. And then as you get older and you know better, you do better, right? So that's really important. When we look at trauma-informed care, there's a ton of resources out there, right? So, um, so when, we, when you think about uh, that survival brain and learning brain, so those are the two things that I always think about, especially when I try to apply it for the chronic pain patient. When I think about the components of trauma-informed care, there is really about creating a safe environment. There's about building relationships and connectiveness. And it's also supporting and teaching emotional regulation. So these are the three cornerstones of components of trauma-informed care, creating a safe environment, building relationships and connections, supporting and teaching emotional regulation. So safety and processing, as well as connecting. Those are really, really important about trauma-informed care. There's a ton of resources out there. Alberta Health has a number of modules that uh, healthcare providers can use, and it's used primarily to help those impacted by trauma provide that patient-centered care as well. So that's the other piece of trauma-informed care is it's really patient-centered. So I'm going to stop there. Next week when we pick it up, we're going to talk about where trauma comes from, the different forms of trauma, and how we can begin to address some of this in clinical practice. So listen, everybody, you have a great week. We continue to support each other through this pandemic. I pray every day for my colleagues in the U.S. I do have family there as well, so it is very scary to watch what was happening there. So please have a safe week. Keep each other safe, stay connected, and we'll see you again next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.